Hi, everyone. This is Amanda, of course. I mean, who else would it be? I felt like I had to introduce myself anyway. <laughs> this week is kind of a big week here at Close Horse World Headquarters in beautiful Bird in Hand, Pennsylvania. Yes, it's really Bird in Hand. I promise that's really the name. <laughs> Anyway, the blog team, as in the founders and leaders of CloseHorse.World, are converging here at my house so we can strategize and make some plans for bigger and exciting things we want to do in the future. So there won't be another episode of Close Horse until Wednesday, July 21st, because I'm going to be really busy getting ready for my guests and, you know, doing work with my guests. However, that July 21st episode is going to be what they call a banger, because it will be the first half of my conversation with Jade of Fashion Without Trashin. And trust me, we talk about some hot stuff in our conversation. I can't wait for you to hear it, to meet Jade, to get to know her better if you already know her from you know Instagram. So that's coming not even two weeks from now. You don't even have to wait that long. I guess it's like a week and a half. And speaking of other exciting things, this Monday, July 12th, as in tomorrow, if you listen to this episode the day it comes out, it is the one-year anniversary of Close Horse. Yes, one year ago on Monday, I released my very first episode, I had no idea what I was doing. I had to Google how to make a podcast, but I just knew I wanted to do it. The guest of the first episode is incredible, my friend Janine, who is a super smart and funny, talented planner. And we talked all about why things cost what they cost. I think of that as like the mandatory listening for all members of the Close Horse community because it's how you start to understand everything else that we talk about that comes after it. Anyway, to celebrate this auspicious occasion, one year of Close Horse, I'm going to be doing a special Monday night Instagram live where I'll be talking about clothing rental. And trust me, I have a lot of experience and knowledge in this area. I'll tell you more about why and how in our Instagram live. Clothing rental is kind of a hot topic. People are a little confused about it. Is it sustainable or is it just a lot of wishful thinking and greenwashing? Well, there's only one way to find out and that is by joining us at 7 p.m. Eastern time on Monday, that's July 12th, to celebrate. Bring a boozy seltzer, bring a non-boozy seltzer, wear something cute, wear some sparkly eyeshadow, whatever makes you feel excited because we're celebrating together. And of course, if you miss that, I realize some of you do have other things going on. <laughs> I'll be saving that video to my IGTV channel, which you can find on the Close Horse Podcast Instagram profile. So if you miss it, you'll be able to still catch it. I can't believe it's been a full year of Close Horse. It, it just went so fast. And it's, it's changed my life so much. You know, when I began the podcast, I was on furlough from my job. I recorded just a few feet away from my bed. And Brenda was basically a kitten. In the midst of the first few months of making the podcast, I, oh my gosh, you guys have no idea, but I was struggling big time with my mental health. I was having a lot of anxiety, a lot of depression. It was very, very bad. I ultimately had lost my job. My cat, Mo, who had had for 13 years passed away. It was 
devastating. And my anxiety and sadness just grew and grew and grew. Clothes horse, working on that, and the community that totally unexpectedly popped up around it, that's what kept me going. It gave me a reason to get out of bed every day, and it made me feel less alone during a really, really lonely time. Well, a year later, there is a legit growing and growing community about Clothes Horse. I've met so many people I never would have met otherwise. I feel like I have all of these friends all over the world who are all incredible because the Clothes Horse community is the coolest, most interesting people around. I I feel so honored to be a part of it. I certainly never thought I would make a podcast or all the other things I've been doing for the last year. And Clothes Horse is the best thing that has ever happened to me so far. You know, a couple of weeks ago, I was on a subreddit that I use a lot called Blogsnark. Um, well, I haven't used it a lot recently, actually, but I did in the past. And interestingly enough, Blog snark is the reason I started Close Horse because people had so many questions about how the fashion industry worked. I was always explaining them and I realized that most people didn't know what was happening with the stuff that we bought, how it was made, the people who made it, all of the strategy and marketing and I don't know, deception involved in it. And that was what made me decide to start Close Horse. I didn't think anyone would listen to it, but you're listening to this right now. And so I always have this fondness in my heart for that subreddit called Blogsnark. And a couple of weeks ago, I was like, you know, messing around with my phone, looking at Reddit. And, you know, they have a weekly thread about podcasts, which I like to read because I'm, I'm kind of constantly looking for new podcasts to listen to while I'm gardening and cleaning and, you know, taking a shower, whatever. It's lonely out here in Bird in Hand sometimes. I need to hear some voices. So you wouldn't believe it, but they were talking about clothes horse, which at first I was like, holy shit, I can't believe it. I feel so big time, except they weren't saying nice things about clothes horse. They were saying that I talk too much about the community and I feature too many people who are in our community. And when you all call and leave voicemails and thank me for the podcast or say something nice about it, I leave that in. And I was really upset for like a day. And then I was like, fuck that noise. You know why? Because first off, we all need to stop snarking as much as we have been. I I think, uh, anyway, I have so many thoughts there. They'll be coming out in an upcoming episode of The Department that you might want to check out. But more importantly, like our community is amazing. All of you are, and you have made my life so much fuller and happier and you're all special and I want to hear all of your voices and hear your stories. I truly believe the personal is the political and I want you to keep the stories coming. The Close Horse Hotline is my favorite thing. I love when I get an email from one of you and it's a message you recorded. So please keep those messages coming. Keep calling the hotline. I want to hear from you. And you know what? I'm not going to edit out the part where you say that you love Close Horse or thank me for my work because you know what? I like hearing it. (laughs) I mean, maybe if you go on for too long, I will. But you know what I mean? Like, I think it's great to hear that you like what I'm doing and I want other people to hear that you like it 
and we can all feel great liking it together. I don't know. I'm rambling right now. Anyway, I'm so grateful for this community, and I can't wait to actually start meeting all of you IRL in the next year at live shows and events. Like, can you imagine how amazing that's going to be? Because some of you I feel like I talk to every day, but we've never actually like hugged or even shook hands. Imagine shaking hands. That's a weird one. Let's not shake hands. (laughs) Anyway, today I wanted to share one of the past Patreon exclusive episodes that I've made. This is the kind of content that you can access as a patron. It's just as heavily researched and edited as my regular episodes. In fact, sometimes these Patreon episodes take even longer because there's even more writing and research and recording. And it's always about a subject that is interesting to me and hopefully interesting to you. If you enjoy this episode and you just generally want to support my work, please go learn more at patreon.com slash podcast. I know that it feels weird to pay for something that isn't an actual object. But just because something isn't physical doesn't mean it doesn't have value. And this is something that I've had to unpack for myself too, that I don't need to own a physical thing to value it. (laughs) I know that all of you think my work has value or you wouldn't be listening right now. So if you can support me financially, please do. It helps me ensure that I can continue to make Close Horse. And if you can't donate money, which I get, it's a tough time, right? We're all struggling to hang in there. There are plenty of other ways to show your support that are also super valuable, like recommending the show to friends, sharing my content on Instagram, and leaving a rating and review on Apple Podcasts. But most importantly, just listen and share what you learn with the people around you. I believe that all of us are on a mission together. I didn't know that when I started Close Horse. I thought I was just explaining how the fashion industry works, but I see more and more that it's up to all of us to educate those around us and to lead by example in terms of the choices we make and the action we take in our communities. We are all influencers and we're all in this together. We can make a difference. I'm excited to see what all of us can do together in this next year. All right, well, enough for me. I feel like I'm kind of getting a little emotional anyway. Let's just jump right into this episode. And don't forget, I'll see you all, I hope, at this Monday's Instagram Live, and I'll be back with a new episode on July 21st. Bye. Close Horse is brought to you with support from the following sustainable brands. Selena Sanders, a social impact brand that specializes in upcycle clothing using only reclaimed vintage or thrifted materials from tea towels, linens, blankets, and quilts. Sustainably crafted in Los Angeles, each piece is designed to last in one's closet for generations to come. Maximum style, minimal carbon footprint. Picnic wear, a slow fashion brand made by hand in New York City from vintage and dead stock textiles. Picnic Wear strives for minimal waste but maximum authenticity. Future vintage over future garbage. Find Picnic Wear on Instagram at Picnic Wear, and that's wear, W-E-A-R, and at www.picnicwear.com. 
No Flight Back Vintage, bringing fun new life to old things. Always using recycled and secondhand materials to make dope ass shit for dope ass people. See more on Instagram at No Flight Back Vintage. Shift clothing out of beautiful Astoria, Oregon, with a focus on natural fibers, simple hardworking designs, and putting fat people first. Discover more at shiftwheeler.com. Late to the party, creating one-of-a-kind statement clothing from vintage, salvaged, and thrifted textiles. They hope to tap into the dreamy memories we all hold. Floral curtains, a childhood dress, the wallpaper in your best friend's rec room all while creating modern, sustainable garments that you'll love wearing and have for years to come. Late to the Party is passionate about celebrating and preserving textiles, the memories they hold, and the stories they have yet to tell. Check them out on Instagram at Late to the Party People. Vino Vintage, based just outside of LA. We love the hunt of shopping secondhand because you never know what you might find. Catch us at flea markets around Southern California by following us on Instagram at vino.vintage so you don't miss our next event. Old Flame Mending helps you keep your clothes intact through clothing repair, visible mending, and tailoring. Through extending the life of textiles, Old Flame Mending makes your pieces not only wearable and functional again, but also unique and beautiful. This mending duo is based in Pittsburgh, but they take mail-in mending orders from anywhere in the U.S. For more information, visit them at oldflamemending.com or follow them on Instagram at oldflamemending. Gabriella Antonis is a visual artist and an ethical trade fashion designer. But Gabriella is also a radical feminist micro-business. She's the one-woman band trying to help you understand why slow fashion is what the earth needs. The one-woman band to help you build your own brand. She can take your fashion line from just a concept and do your sketches, pattern making, grading, sourcing, cutting, and sewing. The second option is for those who aren't trying to start a business and who just want ethical garments. Gabriella Antonis will create custom made-to-measure garments just for you. Her goal is to help help one person of any size at a time, including beyond size 40. To inquire about this serendipitous intersectional offering of either concept, DM her on Instagram to book a consultation. Please follow her on Instagram and Twitter at Gabriella Antonis. And that's Gabriella with one L. Gotta get that spelling right. Dylan Page is an online clothing and lifestyle brand based out of St. Louis, Missouri. Our products are chosen with intention for the conscious community. Everything we carry is animal-friendly, ethically made, sustainably sourced, and cruelty-free. Dylan Page is for those who never stop questioning where something comes from. We know that personal experience dictates what's sustainable for you, and we are here to help guide and support you to make choices that fit your needs. Check us out at dylanpage.com and find us on Instagram at dylanpagelifeandstyle. Salt Hats, purveyors of truly sustainable hats, hand-blocked, sewn, and embellished in Detroit, Michigan. Find us on Instagram at Salt Hats. Karen Kinney Studio. Located in western Massachusetts, Karen specializes in handcrafted earrings from found, upcycled, and repurposed fabrics, as well as other eco-friendly curios, all with a hint of nostalgia, a dollop of whimsy, a dash of color, and 100% fun. Karen is an artist slash designer who believes the materials we use matter. See more on Instagram at Karen Kinney Studio or online at 
www.cKinney.com. Gentle Vibes Vintage. We are purveyors of polyester and psychedelic relics. We encourage experimentation and play not only in your wardrobe, but in your home too. We have thousands of killer vintage pieces ready for their next adventure. See them all on Instagram at Gentle Vibes Vintage. Thumbprint is Detroit's only fair trade marketplace located in the historic Eastern Market. Our small business specializes in products handmade by empowered women in South Africa, making a living wage, creating things they love like hand-painted candles and ceramics. We also carry a curated assortment of sustainable and natural locally made goods. Thumbprint is a great gift destination for both the special people in your life and for yourself. Browse our online store at thumbprintdetroit.com and find us on Instagram at Thumbprint Detroit. Blank Cass, or Blanket Coats by Cass, is focused on restoring, renewing, and reviving the history held within vintage and heirloom textiles. By embodying the love, craft, and energy that is original to each vintage textile as I transfer it into a new garment, I hope we can reteach ourselves to care for and mend what we have and make it last. Blank Cass lives on Instagram at blank underscore Cass, and a website will be launched soon at blankcass.com. Located in Whistler, Canada, Velvet Underground is a velvet jungle full of vintage and secondhand clothing, plants, a vegan cafe, and lots of rad products from other small sustainable businesses. Our mission is to create a brand and community dedicated to promoting self-expression, as well as educating and inspiring a more sustainable and conscious lifestyle, both for the people and the planet. Find us on Instagram at shop underscore velvet underground or online at www.shopvelvetunderground.com. St. Evans is a New York City-based vintage shop that is dedicated to bringing you those special pieces you'll reach for again and again. More than just a store, St. Evans is dedicated to sharing the stories and history behind the garments. 10% of all sales are donated to a different charitable organization each month. For the month of July, St. Evans is supporting For the Quarrels, a black trans-led collective that fundraises to help black transgender people pay for rent, gender-affirming services, other medical expenses, and the associated travel costs. New Vintage is released every Thursday at wearsaintevens.com with previews of new pieces and more brought to you on Instagram at where underscore st dot evens. That's where St. Evans. Country Feedback is a mom-and-pop record shop in Tarboro, North Carolina. They specialize in used rock, country, and soul, and offer affordable vintage clothing and housewares. Do you have used records you want to sell? Country Feedback wants to buy them. Find us on Instagram at Country Feedback Vintage and Vinyl, or head down east and visit our brick and mortar. All are welcome at this inclusive and family-friendly record shop in the country. Welcome to this Patreon-exclusive episode of Clothes Horse, the podcast that never got to have the sugary cereals. Seriously, 
It was all puffed rice, shredded wheat, Rice Krispies and cornflakes in my house. And now as an adult, I have quite an appreciation for all of those. But man, I really miss all the sugary cereals of the 80s. <laughs> Let's take a moment to travel back in time to a simpler time in the midst of this era of all the sugary, all the colorful cereals. Saturday mornings in the 80s and very early 90s, a.k.a. the Saturday morning cartoons. Now, those of us who remember this era, and especially those of us who are particularly cynical about capitalism and marketing and consumerism, we would all agree that basically every Saturday from 8 to noon, we were all being regaled with one long commercial. In the 50s and 60s, children's television was largely an afterthought, just sort of crammed into time slots when adults would be too busy to watch television. That's actually how the Saturday morning cartoons began. You know, it was like a time that most adults would be doing chores or eating breakfast or reading the paper. But in the 70s and 80s, advertisers and toy companies realized that they were sitting on a gold mine with this captive audience, the most easily suggestible and manipulated audience, children. My mom had a rule on Saturday mornings that we must be quiet so she could sleep in. And we had a lot of rules, but that was like a big rule. At 10 a.m., I was required to go into her bedroom to wake her up so she could join us for the Smurfs. We watched that as a family. I don't know why. <laughs> I don't know why she loved that cartoon over all the others. But I still, to this day, have a super soft spot in my heart for the Smurfs and all Smurf-related paraphernalia. Even as I wrote the script for this episode, I was drinking kombucha from a Smurf glass that Dustin found for me on one of his thrift adventures. Like, the Smurfs are in my heart forever. I would love to travel back in time. Well, for a ton of reasons. But for one, just to get out a little stopwatch and time how much of each hour of the Saturday morning cartoons was commercials versus the actual program. Because what I remember most about that era was the commercials. <laughs> they stuck with me more than the plot of any of the cartoons I watched. In fact, Dustin and I are known to find compilations of these commercials on YouTube and watch them for hours. I can't suggest that enough, actually. It's so fun. But to be honest, I'm not sure that comparing the time of each hour that was actual programming versus commercials would really convey the full picture because so many shows actually had products that tied into them. You know, like actual toys you could buy that related to the show. When I started to go down the rabbit hole of like, okay, which cartoons had toys attached to them? Well, that could be a whole episode in itself for sure. It's kind of fascinating. And ultimately, every cartoon turned into a product at some point but some cartoons were created specifically to sell product, right? Like the cartoon and the product arrived at the same time. So here's some examples. He-Man, one of my brother's favorites, the toys existed for two years before that series, but the show was created to sell the toy. The toys just were not as popular as they could have been. The sales were kind of stagnant. They made a cartoon and boom, sales increased immediately. And the success of He-Man kind of, I don't know, it like set the example for all of the toy companies out there as like, whoa, this 
is a genius direction. So Transformers were a direct sort of descendant of this idea that a, that a cartoon could be a long commercial for toys. So Hasbro, which was one of the biggest toy companies of the 80s and 90s, and their name's going to come up multiple times in this episode, Hasbro was looking to copy the massive success of Masters of the Universe, a.k.a. He-Man, which was a Mattel product, another one of the biggest toy manufacturers ever. So they were desperate to create toys that would engage kids in the same way that He-Man and all of his friends and characters were doing because it was so successful. So they created Transformers, both the toys and the cartoons, side by side. And of course, it was a hit. Gem, same thing. Hasbro really wanted to conquer what they called the pink aisle of the toy store, which was, you know, the Barbie aisle and all the other dolls. Because they already felt as if they had conquered the action figure aisle with Transformers and some other products that they turned out over the years. Gem was, of course, wildly successful. I myself had multiple Gem dolls. They were a little weird to me because I'm a huge fan of Barbie and like they were a little bit taller and they had joints, which I wasn't into, but they had amazing clothes. Apparently, Gem was so wildly successful that Mattel was feeling the heat. And so they created Barbie and the Rockers basically just a few months after Jem hit the scene because the company felt that Jem and all of her accessories and friends were eating away at the doll sales. And from what I hear, it was almost a direct copy. Like they literally sat down and were like, what is every attribute of every character in Jem and the Holograms? Let's slightly tweak that into Barbie and the Rockers. Now, what's interesting is I can't remember any of the members of Barbie and the Rockers band, but I do remember all the members of Gem and the Holograms. It was like Aja, Shayna. Okay, I'm missing someone there. Someone of you knows. You have to tell me. Kimber, that's who it was. And Gem's boyfriend's name was Rio. So I remember that show and the dolls way more than I remember Barbie and the Rockers. Interesting, right? What else had a cartoon that was either made alongside it or was used to push the sales of the toys? Well, the beloved Care Bears, the Popples, Pound Puppies. I don't remember this cartoon at all, but apparently existed. My Little Pony, which I loved. Um, And Teddy Ruxpin. It's kind of crazy to me that Teddy Ruxpin had a cartoon because Teddy Ruxpin played tapes anyway. I don't know. It's just like a lot of media around this weird teddy bear. Anyway, even my beloved Smurfs had so many product tie-ins. There were plastic figurines, which I think you can still buy at nice toy stores. There were pajamas, bedspreads. I remember negotiating with my grandma for a stuffed Smurfette doll in exchange for being a good girl in the CAT scan machine. You know, I loved that Smurfette for years and I kind of wish I could snuggle up to her now. She was like probably, I would say, my top three stuffed animals of all time. And if a toy didn't have a show based on it, well, it definitely had tons of commercials that played on Saturday morning, like just as much airtime as an actual 30-minute cartoon would have. There were also ads for sugary cereals, candy, jello pudding pops, Sunny D, Kool-Aid. It was all there, and we wanted it all. It's really easy to advertise to children, I guess. 
I don't know why I'm saying I guess. Of course it is, right? It's easy to advertise to adults. I will say I have never experienced the kind of visceral longing that I would get from watching a block of Saturday morning cartoons. I wanted a Barbie, a Capri Sun, a trip to Chuck E. Cheese. I wanted it all. I've said it before and I'll say it again. We were raised to be consumers. We've been programmed to want to buy stuff all the time. We can't help it. One toy that I saw one Saturday morning really caught my eye, and it was kind of unusual for me to want because I really wasn't into baby dolls. I liked a Barbie or a gem. I liked dressing them up and acting out episodes of Days of Our Lives. I watched that show with my grandma, and I found all the storylines captivating and romantic and exciting. So, you know, I'd replay them to the best of my ability with my Barbies. Whereas baby dolls, you couldn't, they couldn't do anything fun like drive a car off a cliff or end up in a coma. They couldn't turn out to be an evil twin impersonating a good twin that was locked away in the attic. So, I mean, I just didn't have any use for them. But when I saw a commercial for a Cabbage Patch Kid, I was sold. I wanted one so badly. The dolls had a look that I'd never seen before. They didn't actually look like babies at all. These plastic heads with yarn hair and big round faces, big eyes and like tiny molded noses with a body made of fabric and they had clothes that you could take on and off that definitely appealed to me. I I loved and I probably still love dressing a doll. And they came with a super weird name. Seriously, all the names were so weird. Like Babette, Jocelyn, Radford, Jervis, Floyd, Herb, Eartha, Bella, Oscar, Dick. I could go on and on. I actually bookmarked a sort of like crowdsourced list of names. And I will share them all with you because they're incredible. (laughs) And even cooler, this was the part that really impressed me that made this toy seem super special to me. Each doll came with a packet of adoption papers. You, the new adopting parent, even if you were a small child like me, could fill out the paperwork, send it to whatever authority was managing these adoptions, and receive a fancy, frameable adoption certificate with a gold seal. I mean, that is official, right? Also, you know how when you're a kid, getting mail is like the best thing ever. So potential mail tie-in, excited. I wanted one so badly. It was like all I could think about. I talked about it with every member of my family many, many times. But of course, they were sold out everywhere. This was 1983, the year that the dolls broke out on the scene, and it was a crazy time. The evening news was filled with stories about literal riots in department and toy stores across the U.S. as parents fought one another over the last dolls for sale. So... I wasn't holding out any hope that a little girl living in a trailer park in rural Pennsylvania was getting one anytime soon. But somehow a miracle happened. Well, it's it's a little sketchy. But my best friend who lived a few trailers away, her name was Danielle. And we mostly twirled batons in our bathing suits and played Barbies, what you did at that age. Her dad worked at Toys R Us. Toys R Us was kind of like a new place where I lived. Like it had just opened. I don't even think I'd ever been there because my mom was like 
afraid to take me there lest I go into some sort of toy frenzy. But so since Danielle's dad worked at Toys R Us, she always had the best Barbie stuff. And he was able to get a few Cabbage Patch Kids with his employee discount that he was reselling for $50 to anyone who was interested. Now, I just checked this out as part of my research for the episode, and it looks like Cabbage Patch Kids sold for about $20 in 1983. So Danielle's dad, Mr. Danielle perhaps, was making a pretty great profit here, but I can't blame him, right? My mom, of course, said that there was no way we would spend that kind of money on a doll, but word got to my grandma, and she said yes. I needed one, and she would buy it for me. Seriously, my grandma Sandy, if I haven't mentioned this enough on the show, she was my angel when I was a child. She did spoil me a little, but she also taught me so much stuff, and she gave me all the unconditional love that I didn't get anywhere else. Just, yes, I was a little spoiled, but she's just the best grandma you could ever have. So I got a Cabbage Patch Kid, and I knew for like weeks that it was under the Christmas tree in a large box, but, you know, my mom wouldn't let me have it yet, so I had to wait and wait and wait. And when I finally got to open it, it was a yucky boy <laughs> named Byron Charlie. He had short auburn curly hair and he wore overalls and a flannel, which all sounds so cute to me right now. But I had been hoping for one of the girls with long hair. So I was a little disappointed, but nonetheless, I loved him just the same because he was so cool. And so I had been longing for one for so long. Of course, this was just the best day ever. I will say that he was the only male doll I ever owned. So I played with him a lot. Like sometimes he even had to go on dates with Barbie. <laughs> it was it was weird. I couldn't really get him in the Corvette, you know, so they'd have to meet places. <laughs> when you visit cabbagepatchkids.com, still exists, you can learn two origin stories for the Cabbage Patch Kids. The first is the quote, legend. And like all legends, it's pretty magical. Xavier Roberts, the curious 10-year-old boy whose signature could be found on the butt cheek of every Cabbage Patch Kid, he followed a bunny bee. Well, I guess you probably need to know what a bunny bee is, right? It's a bee-like creature that uses its rabbit ears to fly about and pollinate cabbages with magical crystals. I mean, obviously, right? You already knew this, I'm sure. <laughs> anyway, little Xavier followed this bunny bee behind a waterfall into a magical cabbage patch where he found the cabbage patch babies being born. Now, the next part of the story is no longer on the website. It's sort of been like washed from the legend. But I remember this well as a kid. There was a problem. The evil villainess, Lavender McDade, was abducting the Cabbage Patch babies and forcing them to work in her gold mines to rescue them from this terrible fate of child labor and exploitation. Young Xavier, our hero, 
tried to save them all by finding loving parents who would adopt them and keep them safely in their homes. To help all of them, because there were so many of them, find good homes, he built Babyland General Hospital in Cleveland, Georgia, where the Cabbage Patch Kids could live and play until they were adopted. So that Babyland General part of the story still exists, both in the legend and in real life. But like I said, our evil heiress and villainess, Lavender McDade, has been wiped from the legend. There is a Babyland General, a real place, in Cleveland, Georgia, where the salespeople dress as nurses. And it looks vaguely hospital-like, but it's mostly just a place to buy dolls. Of course, I had to dig into the reviews. I mean, I needed to know, what's it like to go to Babyland General? I will say, most of them are really good. Like, people have had very lovely experiences over the years at Babyland General. But there were a few bad ones. It seems like it has changed over time and become less of an experience and more of a store. One visitor complained that they thought it would be, quote, more historical. Another said, I've been pretty much waiting my whole life to go here, and I was very disappointed. The staff are not happy to be here. There's also some sort of gimmick, which... It's been really hard for me to suss out because it seems like they've taken this off their website during the pandemic. So I'm assuming maybe the store is closed. So I couldn't find out the full details of it, but it seems like you pay $225 for a special doll that is born there in the hospital while you're there. I Like I said, I couldn't find out too many details. So if you have experienced this, please call the Clothes Horse Hotline. We all need to know, Right. <laughs> I know it, you're dying to know. One review did say, this place was awful. It is just a large gift shop. They had a birthing, but the nurse was very monotone and unexciting. She obviously did not want to be there. This reviewer continued with something like, she clearly doesn't know what a privilege it is ha- to have a job. And, you know, that rubbed me the wrong way. So I had to look at this guy's reviews. And there were a lot of bad reviews for Hardee's. Um, Hardee's kind of all over the country. Um a bad review for the hospital in which his son was born, and bad reviews for tax agencies, various apartments he'd lived in. Just, just he's kind of mad at everyone. So, <laughs> including Babyland General. Well, anyway, that's the legend story. But like I said, there's another story on the site under our history. So I'm going to tell you this verbatim. Like, I literally am going to read this to you from the site because with a few, you know, with a few interjections from myself. But I just think it's important for you to hear the official Cabbage Patch Kids approved version of how they came to be. It all starts in 1976. A 21-year-old art student, Xavier Roberts, rediscovers needle molding, which is a German technique for fabric sculpture from the early 1800s. Combining his interest in sculpture with the quilting skills passed down from his mother, Xavier creates his first sculptures. And oh yeah, it's really important to tell you that the original Cabbage Patch Kids had fabric faces, not the plastic ones that we know. And I think there have been a few like special collections over the years that have these fabric faces. I remember this was like one of those things that you would gossip about in elementary school, how you heard that so-and-so had a fabric-faced one and it was worth like a million dollars, you know, that kind of thing. 
1978, one of Xavier's dolls, named Dexter, won a first place ribbon for sculpture at the Osceola Art Show. Great success here. So Xavier begins delivering his handmade Little People originals, that's what he called them, and exhibiting them at arts and craft shows in the Southeast. He finds that many people are happy to pay the $40 adoption fee for one of his hand-signed Little People originals. Returning home to Georgia, he organizes five school friends and incorporates original Appalachian Artworks, Inc. Xavier and his friends renovate the L.G. Neal Clinic, a turn-of-the-century medical facility in Cleveland, Georgia, opening Babyland General Hospital to the public. In 1981, the growing success of Xavier's handmade Little People originals is documented by Newsweek, The Wall Street Journal, The Atlanta Weekly, and many others. There are reports that earlier editions are readopting for as much as 100 times the initial adoption fee. 1983 is the big year, the year of riots and fistfights. That's not from their website. I'm adding that in. By the end of the year, almost 3 million of the Cabbage Patch toys have been adopted, but demand has not yet been met. The Cabbage Patch Kid toys go on record as the most successful new doll introduction in the history of the toy industry. In December, they are featured on the cover of Newsweek. Cabbage Patch Kids were one of the most popular toys of the 80s. Over the course of the decade, the dolls reportedly generated about $2 billion in sales. And the rest is history, right? I'm assuming that by now you know that the legend version of the Cabbage Patch Kids origin story is untrue, right? It's a work of fiction. But what if I told you neither of the stories I just told you were true? What would you think about that? Okay, let's switch gears here. I'm going to tell you a completely different story with a different hero, but a familiar villain. And no, it's not Lavender McDade. Martha Nelson Thomas was born in the small town of Preston, Kentucky in 1950. She graduated from the Louisville School of Art. Uh, one interview I read you talked about her moving away to the big city to go to school in Louisville. Everyone oh, has so many good things to say about Martha. She's described as genuine, sweet, salt of the earth, shy. I mean, everyone loved her. While in art school, she experimented with soft sculpture. And according to her friend, photographer Guy Mendez, she was, quote, flat out reinventing the doll. They were expressions of her. These dolls that she created, she called them doll babies, and she sold them at craft fairs where people could adopt these one-of-a-kind creatures. The doll babies had big eyes, full round faces, tiny noses, and yarn hair. Sounds pretty familiar, right? Um, I will tell you, if you see them side by side with Cabbage Patch Kids, spoiler, they look almost exactly the same. Like, the differences are so minor. No two doll babies were alike, and each came with a packet labeled important papers. And inside that packet was an adoption certificate, a letter from Martha declaring that, quote, this is an original little doll baby by Martha Nelson. And there was also a letter from the doll stating its name and the things that the baby liked to do. It's important here to say that Martha did not see these dolls as toys. They were works of art maybe even actual children in her eyes. 
but not a mass-produced, advertised-on-Saturday-morning cartoons kind of item. That's never the vision that she had for her doll babies. As I mentioned, Martha sold her dolls at craft fairs, and she built up a solid following of customers. She wasn't rich, but she was making a living doing what she loved. In 1976, Martha met a particular customer at one of those craft fairs. He owned a small gift shop in Georgia, where he lived, and he asked her to supply him with dolls to sell at his store. And for a while, she let him do that. And they must have been selling pretty well for him. But over time, she felt uncomfortable with how much he was jacking up the prices for them. It just didn't feel ethical to her. So she asked him to return his remaining inventory to her. And he said, if you won't sell them to me, I'll make my own. That incredibly unethical gift shop owner was Xavier Roberts. Well, Roberts made good on his threat. With the help of friend Debbie Moorhead, they hand-stitched dolls called the Little People, which he unveiled to the world in 1978. Rather than buying the dolls, Roberts was sure to say that they were being adopted, and they came with adoption papers, just like Martha's. And how much did it cost to adopt these little people? Because if you recall, the official description of the backstory of Cabbage Patch Kids says that they were sold for $40. Well, actually, Roberts was selling them from anywhere from $60 to $1,000 a piece. The little people were first sold at arts and craft shows and then later at Babyland General Hospital, which was an old medical clinic that Roberts and his friends turned employees converted into a toy store. You already know all about that. Oh, and this is just a fun fact. One and only one set of quintuplets was made in the history of Babyland General. That's five babies. Benny and Jeannie Shelton of Cumming, Georgia paid $5,000 to buy the set of five identical dolls. I couldn't find pictures. I'm so sad. I will keep looking. In 1981, Atlanta designer and licensing agent Roger L. Schleifer approached Roberts about licensing the little people, but he thought the name was terrible. He just thought it was kind of cheesy and basic. And furthermore, Fisher Price already owned that name, which I have so many, so many fond memories of playing with little people toys when I was a kid. One of my babysitters, her name was Bev Boyd, and Most of my best friends from elementary school also went to Bev Boyd's. She watched like seriously 50 kids. And in the garage, they had every little people playset that existed. And my friends and I would sit out there in the garage and play eight hours a day, just leaving to eat lunch and pee. (laughs) That was about it. Anyway, that has nothing to do with anything. Schleifer was like, we can't move forward with the little people. This name is doomed from moment one. So he changed the name to Cabbage Patch Kids. So yeah, Xavier Roberts wasn't even responsible for that part of it. And Schleifer and his wife created the legend where they made Xavier a little boy to make it sound more appealing and magical to children. Schleifer also created the partnership with Coleco, which was a huge toy company at this point, that would change the direction of the Cabbage Patch Kids forever. So let's take a moment to talk about Coleco. I feel like it's such an interesting 20th century business story, and you'll see why. 
The company began in 1932 as the Connecticut Leather Company. The business supplied leather and shoe findings, meaning you know pieces you would need to repair shoes, to shoe repair shops. It was founded by a man named Maurice Greenberg. By the early 1950s, and thanks to his son, Leonard Greenberg, the company had diversified further and was making like leather lacing and leather craft kits, you know, to make like a wallet or a pair of moccasins, lanyards, these kinds of things. In 1954, at the New York Toy Fair, their leather moccasin kit was selected as a child guidance prestige toy. And this, you know, was the light bulb moment for the Greenbergs. They decided to go wholeheartedly into the toy business. So in 1956, Leonard, the son of Maurice, read about this emerging technology. It was using a vacuum to form plastic. This was like a new thing. And he felt that this was going to be a turning point for children's toys and a lot of other things, which he was, you know, he was right about. And so he moved full steam ahead into this plastics area. And it was great for the company because they began to produce an enormous array of all kinds of plastic toys and wading pools, like the hard kind that, you know, you just flip over and dump out. We've all played in those, right? In 1961, the Greenbergs were like, hey, we don't need this leather business anymore because we're a toy company. So they sold the leather part of the company and were like, we're just toys. That's what we do now. And so they began buying a lot of different toy manufacturers. In 1963, the company bought Kestrel Corporation of Springfield, Massachusetts, and that was a manufacturer of inflatable vinyl pools and toys. So now they were just like owning the backyard pool business, right? They became the largest manufacturer of above-ground swimming pools in the world. And at this point, they were going by the name Coleco. Then in 1966, they bought Playtime Products and later Eagle Toys of Canada. By the end of the 60s, Coleco had 10 manufacturing facilities and a new corporate headquarters in Hartford, Connecticut. I mean, this was a great time for them. But the 70s were hard. They made some bad business decisions. In 1972, and I, I don't know why, they decided they wanted to get really into snowmobiles. It it was a flop for them because there was poor snowfall and not a lot of people who wanted to buy a snowmobile. So they lost a lot of money there. This company's story is so crazy so far, right? So we start as a leather company. We're making kiddie pools. We're making a lot of other toys. Then we're making snowmobiles. <laughs> I don't know. Anyway, it's going to get crazier. In 1976, and remember, this was like a hard time for the company, they entered the video game console business with the Telstar. Basically, the entire world was trying to cash in by copying Atari's success with Pong, and Coleco was no exception here. Everyone was making a console. Like every tiny entrepreneur with a dream was like going full throttle with these consoles. But there was a catch. All of the new games were based on general instruments, quote, pong on a chip. It was a really important ingredient in creating these consoles. General Instrument had underestimated demand. You know, like I said, all these companies were popping up to manufacture different consoles. 
And so there were severe shortages, but somehow through the grace of God or just really good luck, Coleco had been one of the first to place an order. And so they were one of the few companies to actually receive an order of these chips in full. Now, that allowed them to become a household name. Many other companies who couldn't receive the chips failed immediately. So Coleco, flying high. For the next few years, Coleco manufactured a variety of like handheld electronic games, which were very popular and pretty affordable. They also returned to the video game console market in 1982 with the launch of the ColecoVision, which was probably their most successful console. It sold 500,000 units over two years. But the era of video game consoles, and I laughed at this because I think video game consoles are more popular than ever in 2020, but at this time in the 80s, this trend was almost over as fast as it began because more and more people were starting to buy desktop computers, which they could use to play even more games, whereas like these consoles would only allow you to play games made by the same company that made the console, so it was a lot more limited. Coleco saw this. I mean, like I said, there were some smart people working there, other than this like weird snowmobile thing of the past. So they introduced the Coleco Atom home computer, which... My husband, Dustin Travis White, had as a kid and loved. They offered both a standalone system that would be your home computer, and they also had an expansion model that connected to the ColecoVision. So no matter what, you could play games. Unfortunately, it was not very successful because those atoms were often incredibly unreliable and glitchy. The early purchasers of them had bad things to tell everyone else, so the demand dropped off really fast. Coleco stopped making electronics in 1985, but by then it was no big deal to them because they were flush with Cabbage Patch Kids money. So what happened? Well, Schleifer contacted all the major toy and doll companies in the country and they all turned him down, saying that the look of the little people slash Cabbage Patch Kids, well, they were just too ugly to sell on the mass market. And to be fair, they're Pretty weird, especially when you think about the traditional dolls and how they more and more looked like actual infants, right? And these were something else. They were fantastical in their homeliness. (laughs) But Schleifer, he believed in this. He kept pushing and pushing. And he found Coleco in 1982. And he sold them on being his master toy licensee, which is a really big deal. And he got a record-setting advertising guarantee out of this. So it was a very good deal for everyone involved. That includes Xavier Roberts. Schleifer designed the iconic Cabbage Patch Kid packaging. That's right. Xavier Roberts didn't do that either. But Coleco's design team, headed by famous renowned doll designer Judy Albert devised an industry first. It was a -a one-of-a-kind doll, meaning most of the early dolls were somewhat unique to one another. We'll talk about that in a moment. And they had plastic heads with super soft bodies. They cutened up Xavier's original dolls a little bit, and they also were able to bring the cost down to manufacture them to almost nothing making it easy to sell the dolls for about $20, which was significantly less than he had been selling them for. How were they able to do that? Well, that's because the dolls and most of their accessories and packaging were now being made in China. Okay, so the uniqueness. 
I remain pretty skeptical of this, but I found this in a New York Times article. Using computers to keep track of its dolls, the company, despite having almost 3 million of the dolls produced in Hong Kong, says it has managed to keep each one individual by changing characteristics such as eye color, freckles, hair, dimples, and clothing. I kind of call bullshit on this because while Dustin and I were looking at photos of Cabbage Patch Kids online, like you do as an adult married couple, I saw that one looked exactly, exactly like my first one, Byron Charlie. But the doll in the photo did have a different outfit. That was the only thing that was different. So I guess not technically identical, but it's a little scammy that there were 3 million unique Cabbage Patch Kids out there. Coleco also held onto the adoptions concept along with the unique naming strategy, but they put a ton of market research into this because initially they weren't 100% sold and they wanted to nail the launch. And all of that research reinforced the importance of the adoption concept, which, as you know, as a kid, I loved and thought was so cool. A deep dig through the New York Times archive, one of my favorite places to go for close horse information, garnered all kinds of just like fascinating info for me like this. Ruth Manko, a psychologist and market researcher said, we asked women, parents of children 10 and under, to our first Cabbage Patch Kid group sessions in Chicago. In September 1982, while Coleco officials watched from behind a mirror in an observation room, Mrs. Manko said, the women held the dolls on their laps, stroked them, held their hands, took off their sweaters when they thought it had become too warm. She added, one woman I remember was knitting a sweater for her doll. During this session, she said the women talked about the concepts of birth and adoption. More than a dozen of the preliminary sessions were held in Chicago, Atlanta, and suburbs in New Jersey. They were followed by scores of individual interviews, including many with adoptive parents, and by psychological studies commissioned by Coleco before the company put its dolls on the market last summer. All of these marketing techniques indicated that children and parents would, in effect, adopt the Cabbage Patch Kids. Mrs. Menko said the parents and children who were studied responded to the outstretched arms, read the birth certificates and adoption papers. She added, we showed them the belly buttons. I forgot about the belly buttons. They all wore pampers and mothers related to them right away. And I have to say, I didn't remember until I read this that the Cabbage Patch Kids came in an actual disposable diaper. I don't know if they did that in later years, but my Byron Charlie came in a diaper and you could buy special Cabbage Patch diapers. You could also buy preemie diapers, like regular human diapers in the preemie size, and they would fit the Cabbage Patch Kids. Later on, I was able to get a tiny pair of briefs for Byron because also Cabbage Patch Kids fit into real human baby clothes, which I think was a super smart strategy for making them seem more real. Now, when I talk about that, though, I'm talking about the original size of the Cabbage Patch Kids of the early 80s, which will change down the road. They will get smaller, like everything good, right? We'll talk about that in a little bit. One more thing from this article. Reading it blew up my brain. The reason they became so popular, according to Mrs. Manko, are that not only could they be held and felt, but they were not beautiful, and we know that babies are not always so beautiful. <laughs> I mean, 
there's something there, right? 1983 was the year that the Dolls launched, as I mentioned, and it was a year of insanity. Demand was so great that Coleco canceled all of its advertising as they tried to keep up with demand. Shipping a, this was a record for the entire doll industry, 3.2 million dolls in 1983 alone. Stores across the country might only receive one or 200 dolls to sell. So customers were literally fighting one another over these dolls. The 1983 holiday season saw several violent occurrences and riots at Sears, JCPenney's, Montgomery Ward's, and Macy's. Some stores like Kmart and the now defunct Zare, put a, put a pin in that because Zare's going to come back in a moment, they attempted to control crowds by handing out these like purchase tickets to the first several hundred customers. But then... I mean, this is how long these lines for these dolls would be. There'd be hundreds, if not thousands, of unhappy customers outside that store who didn't get a ticket. And in most cases, they had been standing in line for several hours. And it was probably cold. (laughs) Just a recipe for disaster. So I stumbled across an amazing article from 1998 called Memories of a Doll Riot Veteran. Scars linger from 83 Cabbage Patch Brawl. (laughs) You want to hear more, don't you? In this article, a man recalls being asked by his mother to help her procure a Cabbage Patch Kid doll for his little sister. He was a teenager at the time and kind of annoyed, but agreed to help. I have to read some sections of his story about the infamous Zare's Cabbage Patch Kid riot in Wilkes-Barre, PA. I told you Zare was going to come back. Also, if you have any memories of Zare, please let me know. It like sounds familiar to me, but I know we didn't have this store in central Pennsylvania. Okay, so here's his story, or part of it. As soon as we approached the store, I couldn't believe my eyes. There before us were hundreds of people, some, the papers would later report, who'd been there since midnight. Undaunted, we proceeded forward. While waiting for the store to open, the conversations among the masses were cordial. Everyone had a story about some child in the family who desperately wanted one of these ugly dolls. I took comfort in seeing one of my friends from Wyoming Valley West High School at a place that I had deemed a very uncool place to be. All was well until about 8.50 a.m. when the doors finally opened. It was then that this previously mild-mannered group, which by then had reached nearly 1,000, transformed into a frenzied pack of wolves. A massive surge pushed everyone forward as the crowd frantically entered the store. Still, there was uncertainty as to where the dolls were located. Rumors outside had hinted that they were not in the toy department, but at the front service desk. So the feverish hunt had begun. Mom and I split up and I noticed a throng gathered near one of the front counters. Heading in that direction, I saw people running at full speed, pushing, shoving, elbowing, and screaming. It was insanity. Even an offbeat teenager like myself, probably wearing a jean jacket and a twisted sister shirt, felt I was above the situation. This, I thought, is silly. Soon, the store manager, later quoted as saying he was fearful for his life, began fending off the crowd with a baseball bat. Standing behind the counter with the bat twirling in the air, he began tossing the dolls out over the crowd, This, of course, triggered the same reaction you'd get from a fumbled football on Super Bowl Sunday. 
One poor woman, lucky enough to snatch a doll, later was pushed to the floor and had it torn from her grasp. She was later taken to the hospital with a broken leg. Four others were also treated for injuries. After what seemed like only a few minutes, it was all over. I could not bring myself to shove or hurt anyone for a doll, so I watched most of the chaos from the sidelines. Mom, I would learn after relocating her in the aftermath, had done the same. We headed back to the car, empty-handed, but with our integrity and dignity intact. The hype, the stories of riots, this only made people want Cabbage Patch Kids even more. Uh, Dr. Lee Salk, who, if you're have read any baby books of the 80s and 90s you're familiar with. He was the professor of pediatrics and psychology at Cornell University Medical College, and the New York Times reached out to him. And he suggested, correctly in my view, that the Cabbage Patch Kids benefited from, quote, an extraordinary amount of media hype that underscored the crowd effect of everybody rushing out to get one of these dolls. And yeah, and that's true. We know that works. We've talked about that a ton here on the podcast about how scarcity makes people want stuff even more. Like they don't even think about the actual object, their budget, their need for it. They just want. It works for LuLaRoe, Beanie Babies, Kylie Jenner lip gloss, uh, the people waiting outside Supreme in line. You name it. We love a scarce item. So 1983 was a big year for Cabbage Patch Kids, but 1984 was even bigger. Not only was Coleco churning out the dolls, just tons and tons, but licensing deals abounded. There were pajamas, bedding, storybooks, clothes for both the dolls and actual humans. just want to jump in here and say also that it was a phenomenon of women at craft fairs and farmers markets and whatnot making their own. Cabbage Patch clothing for sale, which I remember totally my grandma buying me at different craft fairs and events. So I guess one side effect of the Cabbage Patch Kids is it allowed people to create their own businesses. There were posters, stickers, greeting cards, toothpaste. I had the Cabbage Patch Kid toothpaste. It tasted like bubble gum. There was bubble bath, calendars. I mean, the whole world had Cabbage Patch fever to the tune of $2 billion worth of sales that year which in 2021 money is $5 billion. There was also that year a Cabbage Patch Kid record called Cabbage Patch Dreams. It was produced by the Chapin Brothers for Parker Brothers Music. It went platinum. And there was also a series of Cabbage Patch Kid books that were bestsellers. And there was a video game called Cabbage Patch Kids Adventures in the Park. I mean... It was a huge year, 1984, right? Okay, so we kind of know what's going on with the Cabbage Patch Kids in 1984. Let's talk about our true hero, Martha Nelson Thomas. So they both traveled in the same craft fair circuit. So she had known for a while what Xavier Roberts was up to. And she filed suit against him in 1979. But it had been kind of languishing in legal limbo. So by 1983... She was suing him for a million dollars, which seems laughable when you remember that the Cabbage Patch Kids generated $2 billion in sales the following year. The case was divided into two parts, and this was part of why it was in this weird legal limbo for so long. Part of it was about copyright, and part of it was about fair trade. 
After the copyright hearing, a federal district court judge ruled that the copyright that Roberts had obtained was valid and that he had not misrepresented himself in not giving credit to her product. Basically, the issue was that Martha hadn't copyrighted the dolls because I just don't think she saw it as a huge cash cow and she didn't think that someone would actually steal the ideas and make millions. She also didn't even know that you could copyright a doll. She told the Christian Science Monitor that year, I know we're asking for money, but that's not the reason we're in it. It's not completely honest to sell his dolls and then when asked where it originated to omit my part, which as we know, still happens today. She was also unhappy with the fact that the dolls were being mass-produced. She said, There are too many mass-produced things. You need something personal, something handmade, with someone who will stand behind it. And Martha wasn't the only person troubled by the -the over-the-top frenzy for the dolls. Around that time, Cabbage Patch Kids received the Worst Gift of the Year Award from a small organization called Alternatives in Elwood, Georgia. The organization, which didn't like the way the dolls were marketed, tried to encourage thoughtful gift-giving with less spending on purchased items and more diverted to charitable causes. Milo Shannon Thornberry, the alternatives director, said the dolls were, quote, marketed as a substitute for loving real kids. Martha was able to settle out of court for an undisclosed amount in 1985, but I get the impression that it was a teeny tiny fraction of all the money Roberts ever made off the dolls. Martha told the press that she was more upset by the corruption of her dolls, for which she cared deeply, than the money she'd lost as the result of Robert's actions. And I think that once again speaks to why Martha never copyrighted her dolls, because she didn't see them as a commodity, right? That's something that you would need to copyright. Martha did have one trick up her sleeve, however. She sold a line of craft items through Fibercraft based on her original doll babies that allowed buyers to sew up their own dolls. It only cost $16, which was a hot deal compared to the mass-produced dolls that were selling on the black market for up to $150. Also, most retailers had a nine-month waiting list for them. I read a great article where all kinds of moms were singing the praises of these doll kits, saying that they were cuter and better anyway, and their kids loved them. Meanwhile, Cabbage Patch Kids continued on a pretty wild journey through the 80s. In 1985, Cabbage Patch Kids' low-sugar breakfast cereal arrived on the scene. It was an ill-advised but well-intentioned attempt to get children to eat healthier foods. And uh, (laughs) it ceased production after selling $10 worth of cereal. Not sure what happened there. Um, Actual diapers for real human children with Cabbage Patch Kid art on them were introduced. The Cabbage Patch Kid's first Christmas animated special with music by famed composer Joe Raposo was the number one in its time slot on ABC In 1986, Xavier Roberts himself took Topps, the trading card company, to court over the Garbage Pail Kids cards. He wanted $30 million from them. Ultimately, at this point, Topps had sold $70 million worth of these cards. They were able to settle for $7 million. And so I feel like there's a sense of justice here, right? That Xavier Roberts didn't get everything he was asking for. Topps made a big profit. Yes, 
to a certain extent, Tops was sort of copying Cabbage Patch Kids, but they were really just, it was like parody, right? And I just like someone sticking it to Xavier Roberts a little bit. Furthermore, Tops retained the right to continue producing the Garbage Pail Kids. Thank God. So Buggy Betty and Wrinkly Randy lived to see another day. I loved those cards. My friend Kara Garbrick and I kept our cards in little like recipe card organizers and we would get together every few weeks to swap. It was so fun. Ugh, what a good time. There was also a weird thing around this time where Schleifer and Roberts, definitely in a weird double crossy kind of way, tried to develop a bear based on Cabbage Patch Kids called Fur-Skin Bears. They had a similar aesthetic. The, I guess all of the packaging and like the backstory and just the Appalachian vibe, it was all incredibly similar to Cabbage Patch Kids because as far as I can tell, I'm about to snark here a little bit, Xavier Roberts couldn't come up with an original idea. Anyway, I found this story a little bit confusing because sometimes business doesn't make sense at all. But Coleco basically bought the entire stock of these fur skin bears from Schleifer and Roberts. They destroyed it all. And then they paid the two of them a bonus to not make any more competitive products. And this was not the best time for Coleco to just be handing out bonuses and buying unused inventory. Why, you ask? Well, by this time, Coleco was in a bad financial situation. Sure, they had the Cabbage Patch Kids money coming in, but they were still digging themselves out of that Adam computer disaster that I talked about earlier. To make matters worse, they had been spending money like madmen, paying inflated prices for games like Trivial Pursuit, Scrabble, and Parcheesi. Cabbage Patch Kids had carried them through some of that loss, but well... The sales of the dolls were waning because the peak of the craze was over. Yet they were still producing enough dolls to meet this past craze. So they were overproduced. Sales were falling. They had lost all this money on board games and the Atom computer disaster. They had to file Chapter 11 bankruptcy in 1988. And that was the end of Coleco. Well, guess who swooped in? Hasbro, those geniuses of selling stuff to kids. (laughs) They took over the rights to produce Cabbage Patch dolls in 1988. And they, I mean, they knew what they were doing to a certain extent. They made so many gimmicky dolls. One that played a kazoo. I kind of remember this one. I don't know anyone who had it. A birthday kids series that would encourage your parents or grandparents to buy you a kid for your birth month. Splash and Tan Kids, which I think you could put water on their face and it would change them tan or give them sunscreen lines. I'm not really sure. Or maybe the sun did something to them. And then one called Pretty Crimp and Curl, which is important to call out because by this time, a lot of dolls had that like Barbie style hair rather than the yarn. So they were changing a ton. They even produced a 10-year anniversary doll in the original packaging It sold pretty well. Hasbro gradually began making the dolls for younger and younger children, 
which led to smaller and smaller dolls. So they no longer fit into actual baby clothes anymore. You had to buy the specific Cabbage Patch clothes. Although Cabbage Patch dolls were still best-selling toys, they continue to sell. The craze, the rage was over. And with no TV or movie presence, there was seemingly no way to revive them. Now, Hasbro did not pursue a television show about the Cabbage Patch Kids. And, well, when you get to the end of the episode, you'll understand why. So just put a pin in that. In 1994, the Cabbage Patch Kids traded hands again with Mattel, Hasbro's arch rival, acquiring the licensing rights. That new Mattel version of Cabbage Patch Kids hit stores in 1995, The Mattel version wasn't just limited to cloth bodies. Some of them were entirely vinyl so kids could play with them in water, and that was like an additional sales gimmick, right? The dolls were also smaller than the original Coleco ones, kind of carrying on that smaller Hasbro theme. They each came with their own gimmick. I mean, the gimmicks just continued forever, right? In the attempt of creating an illusion of collectability, which had and continues to be, to a certain extent, been very successful for Mattel with Barbie. Think about all of the collectible Barbies over the years. Mattel was hoping to take some of that magic and sprinkle it on the Cabbage Patch Kids. So some dolls came with water toys. There was one that specifically swam. I remember seeing the commercial for this. There was another one that ate tiny plastic foods, but it turned out to be dangerous, and I think maybe had to get recalled. Um, There was another one that had teeth that could be brushed. I feel like it came with a little fake tube of crest. They also created the Olympic Kids, which were released for the 1996 Olympics. Um, And they started a line of Cabbage Patch Fairies. But by 2001, Mattel's sales were stalling out. Just the new kids didn't want Cabbage Patch Kids, and there were plenty of other toys to play with. So another licensing opportunity emerged, this time with Toys R Us. The 20-inch kids dolls and 18-inch baby dolls, both with cloth bodies and vinyl heads like the originals, were packaged in cardboard cabbage leaf seats. In 2001, the 20-inch dolls, so the kids, debuted in the Times Square flagship store. These were created to celebrate the 20th anniversary of the line, and they were available both online and in stores around the U.S., but... They were expensive, and they were too cumbersome at 20 inches for most young children to play with, so it was a very short-lived and very unsuccessful partnership. Well, next, Play Along Toys obtained exclusive licensing rights to produce the Cabbage Patch Kids doll line. And in 2003, again, using Schleifer's original packaging, Play Along launched a Cabbage Patch Kids 25th anniversary collection using some of the original head sculpts from the very first Coleco editions. Play Along also partnered with Carvel Ice Cream. They created a co-branded Cabbage Patch Kid that was packaged with a Carvel ice cream cone. The sales were kind of whatever. Next, <laughs> you know, can you believe how many times the Cabbage Patch Kids changed hands? I'm st- this blows my mind still. Jack Specific acquired Play Along Toys, and so then they became the master toy licensee for the Cabbage Patch Kids. Their interpretation was a 14-inch, so much smaller, Cabbage Patch Kids fashionality line 
which had a lot of clothes and accessories you could buy on the side. And then they had some other Cabbage Patch products that weren't even the actual dolls, but other mini figurines and, you know, games, that kind of stuff. In 2013, Jack's Pacific now released the Celebration Edition to commemorate the 30th anniversary of the Cabbage Patch Kids. Basically, every license holder is like, every five years, we're going to cash in on that anniversary collection. Now, in 2020, Wicked Cool Toys is the current master toy licensee for the Cabbage Patch Kids. I'm assuming they also own Babyland General Hospital, and you know they run the website and everything else. And that's kind of where we are right now with Cabbage Patch Kids. Well, where's everyone else? You know that's how I like to wrap things up around here. Well... Our hero, Martha, died of ovarian cancer in 2013 at the age of 62 with her most favorite dolls attending her funeral alongside her family members and friends. She was survived by her three children and her husband, who is a lovely man. (laughs) There is an amazing short documentary about her and the dolls by Vice, of all places, called The Secret History of Cabbage Patch Kids. It's about 10 or 15 minutes long, and it's definitely worth your time. I mean, just alone to hear how everyone just adored Martha so much. It, it really got to me. I teared up a little bit. Um, what an, a lovely, lovely person. And I'll share that with you all in all. Just one of the best people I've talked about on Clothes Horse so far. Okay, well, what about our villain, Xavier Roberts? Well, he kind of lives under the radar, I guess. I couldn't find that much about him. But I do know that he was a millionaire by the age of 26, and his net worth in 2020 is estimated at $68 million. I think the thing that upsets me most about the story is that in all of my research, 90% of the articles I read still credit him with inventing Cabbage Patch Kids on his own, which is just fundamentally and obviously untrue. Now, cynical people might say, well, that's what Martha gets for not copywriting her stuff. But as I've said before, we can't confuse what the law says is right or wrong with what is ethically right and wrong, which is something I'm sure we've all seen play out time and time again. It's what happens every time a fast fashion company copies a designer or an artist, right? It's the same situation. It also makes me so sad because I feel like if people had known that this was happening in 1983 or 1984, maybe the Cabbage Patch Kids launch wouldn't have been so crazy. Then again, it might have been just the same because sometimes people just don't care about that stuff, right? (sighs) Okay, well, one last important follow-up. The beginning of the end of the Saturday morning cartoons came in 1990. Congress was receiving steady and increasing pressure from parents and children's interest groups regarding the issue and impact of advertising to children, which, as we know, was practically weaponized to great success in the 80s. So Congress passed the Children's Television Act. This act did two things. It increased the amount of educational programming for children, and it limited, meaning decreased, the amount of advertising permitted during children's shows. So 
it said you can no longer invent a TV show just to sell toys. And you also can't bombard children with just as much advertising as programming. This action combined with the later U.S. FCC requirements that broadcast networks air at least three hours of educational and informative programming each week guaranteed the end of Saturday morning cartoons because they were not considered educational. Of course, we still know of many successful educational programs that had a huge toy market around them, like Barney, Elmo, I'm sure I'm missing a ton here, Teletubbies. It wasn't the end of selling stuff to kids via television, but it did rein it in quite a bit. Now, these requirements, like all things, were very loosely enforced. And so increasingly networks, rather than try to make educational cartoons, They substituted live action shows that weren't educational, but didn't seem quite as kid focused, like Saved by the Bell, later Hannah Montana, and That's So Raven. I mean, this trend continues today on Disney and Nickelodeon and all kinds of other cable channels. But this allowed them to kind of skirt the requirements of children's programming. R.I.P. Saturday morning cartoons. I kind of miss them. I miss the nice feeling of getting up on Saturday and laying on the couch and watching cartoons all morning. How about you? I would love to hear your thoughts and memories of Cabbage Patch Kids, cartoons, anything else. You can email me at closehorsepodcast at gmail.com. You can DM me on Instagram where I'll be posting lots of Cabbage Patch Kid content this week. And that's at closehorsepodcast. Or call the Close Horse Hotline, 717-925-7417. Special super thanks to Miss Jenny Herbert of Leech the Party for inspiring this episode. And thanks, as always, to my AV crew of one, Mr. Dustin Travis White. Happy New Year. (laughs) 